Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we open up His Word? Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as one family, brothers and sisters who share the same spirit. Our heart beats for the same purpose, which is your glory and praise. Father, you have, you have grafted us into your family in such a way that that we now know and feel your love and we get to share that love with one another in a special way. And so, Father, in today's services, we want to pray that you would fill us with the reality of your abundant love for us and your grace that is found in Jesus, that you would just put air beneath our sails or, or behind our sails and that you would just give us right thinking and right feeling about your love for us in Jesus. And Father, even in this moment, we want to pray. We want to, be, we want to seek your help. Seek your, your face. Because in the midst of our hope, in the midst of our excitement to be a part of your family, we know that People inside of our family and outside of our family are struggling and, and grieving and dealing with difficulty. Uh, we pray for those in our body who are struggling physically. There are many. We plead for you to meet them at the point of their greatest need. Father, for those outside our, our body, for those even outside of this state, like in Florida, we with 16 people, students, teacher, coach, who've been struck down by bullets this week. There are family members, friends, classmates, teachers, administrators, neighbors who are grieving today. Father, we just want to ask for you to enter into their lives with hope and comfort and peace that only the gospel can bring. Father, we want to pray that you would fill us with hope, strength, and power for service so that we can be the kinds of people in our world, in our community, on our street that brings the hope of the gospel to people who need it most. So equip us now. Train us. Fill us with understanding and knowledge and power so that we can be, yes, like your son Jesus, who brought resurrection hope to those whom he ministered. We pray this in his name. Amen. People are getting sick and dying at an incredible rate right now. Earlier this week, I was visiting with a funeral director here local, and he told me that they have never been so full of funerals than they are right now. He said in the last 45 days... It has been incredible. They've been calling around for extra hearse to fulfill all the needs, but none have been provided because all the other funeral homes are using every hearse that they have as well. Everyone is slammed full. They've had to turn families down for services because they simply can't meet all the funeral needs. 
People are dying left and right. Old people, young people, children. Disease is getting some. Illness is getting others. Viruses are getting others. And yeah, violence is even getting more. And this is what I want to say on the outset, and, and, and I hate to be just so soberly serious with you, but this is a fact. Death is no respecter of persons. It doesn't care who you are, how much money you have, who your mommy and daddy are, how young you are, how much you have to look forward in this life, what kind of physical condition you're in. Death snatches people of all shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, and ages. And unless the Lord returns, this is what I want you to know, you will die. I will die. Your your blood will stop running. Your brain will stop functioning. Your body will stop moving. Your life on this earth will come to an end. Think about this. I will likely preach your funeral. Or you will likely attend my funeral. This is the basic physical progression of life. You're conceived, you're born, you live, you die. That's it. And not only will you die, but the people who love you most in this world will also die. And many of them will die before you die. Think about that. Many of the people that you love the most in this world will die before you do. And so you will be left to figure out how to to cope, how to live without the presence of people whom you love deeply and have grown so accustomed to leaning on, loving, learning from. I've had the the opportunity over the last couple of weeks to attend a a number of different funeral uh, scenarios. And just to kind of to protect the identity of uh, the folks that are involved, I'm going to call Um, I'm going to call one of these persons Miss P. Miss P. And uh, this happened a little over a week ago, but um, Miss P died of uh, really of of complications from cancer. She was a Christian. And I'm I'm kind of uh, loosely connected to the family through a close friend who is uh, both the daughter and and son-in-law of Miss P. But as she died... Last week, um, her husband of 48 years was right by her side, and and her uh, her daughter and her son and her son-in-law were right there. They called a hospice, a funeral director, and it took about an hour for hospice to to come. But once hospice finally came, it was not the normal hospice worker. She was on call, but she was sick, and so they had to get kind of a stand-in, a fill-in office administrator from hospice to come and fulfill that, that particular duty. Then the funeral directors come in, and when the funeral directors come in and, and they, they, they put Miss um, P on the gurney, they are wheeling Miss P out of the room, and Mr. P follows the gurney all the way uh, through the front door and starts walking down the steps when his daughter says, Hey, Dad! Dad, what are you doing? And Mr. P just kind of like stunned and he turned around and he's kind of with a little bit of a grin. And he actually told his family that was there, he said, you know, I've been trying to protect her, um, but now she's in the arms of the great protector. And he went back 
And as they visited with the the stand-in hospice woman, she seemed to be perplexed at the at the peace and the calm of everybody in the room. And she just said, I just don't know how people can can get through something like this maybe without God. You know, it was like a very general statement. And Mr. P, who had just followed his wife outside and was stopped in his tracks and came back, he pulled out of his pocket a cross. And he says, I want to tell you about the peace and assurance that we have. And he begins to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to this hospice worker one minute after his wife is wheeled out of the house. He talks about the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the powerful resurrection, the ascension, and the future return of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, do you have this same hope? The friend that I have, who's the son-in-law, said that Mr. P, he says that he shares the gospel in the same way that I breathe air. He says he just needs to do it because he is so enthralled with the person and work of Jesus. Now this is my question, church. How can a person who was married for 48 years and who loved his wife so dearly a minute after she is her dead body is wheeled out of the house, turn around and minister to someone in such a way that that someone collapses in his arms and says, thank you for your ministry to me tonight. I'll tell you how. It's through the truth of John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. It's the truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I want you to know, church, that the amazing and beautiful truth of the text before us this morning is that death does not have to mark the end of your hopes and dreams. Death can be faced with excitement instead of anxiety. It can be faced with joy instead of gloom because Jesus Christ conquers the sting of death and accomplishes physical and spiritual resurrection for all who believe in Him. Go to John chapter 11 right now. John 11... Pastor Phil preached John 11, 1 through 16 for us last week, in which he said that Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus had made this divine declaration. He says that God is going to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified through this situation of Lazarus' illness. And then we saw this disheartening delay. It says that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, and so he remained where he was for two more days. And we were perplexed by this. If Jesus loves Mary and Martha, if Jesus loves Lazarus, would He not put down what He is is doing in this moment and go the hundred miles down to Bethany in order to save Lazarus' life? It was so confusing about His delay. But Phil brought out very adequately that, listen, sometimes Jesus demonstrates His greatest love for you in delay. In delay. And we have to trust Him in the midst of that. And then there was a dangerous decision that was made, uh, and then a devoted disciple said, come, let us go die with Him. Um, That was in verse 16. And so, we approach verses 17 through 44 today with this recognition that 
Lazarus died and Jesus stayed a hundred miles away two additional days knowing that Lazarus was on his deathbed about to die. And you're thinking, why in the world did he do this? And Jesus already has stated, because God will receive glory and I will be glorified through this. So pick it up in verse 17. We'll read all the way through verse 44. If you will, just hone in on the Word of God and the ministry of Jesus and let this Word pour over you as it is the revelation of God to your life and to your heart. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. May God bless the reading of His Word. But if you look down at the text, beginning, starting in verse 17, I first want us to see the section where we see the identity of Jesus. The identity of Jesus. We ask the question, who is He? What is He about? When we say the word Jesus, it seems like people can just fill in the blank of of what He's about, who He is, what He does, what His priorities are. And here, Jesus Himself, in the midst of pain and weeping and mourning and struggle and strife and all kinds of emotions, Jesus establishes the primary nature of His identity in these verses. Now, When we observe things in this text, the first thing that we see is that Lazarus has been in the tomb for how long? Four days. I did the math on this in my little notebook, not even using a calculator, so I apologize if it's not exactly right, but it's 96 hours, 5,760 minutes. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 96 hours, 5,760 minutes. I mean, he's been dead a a little longer than that, but the fact is is that in this day, people buried those who died on the same day that they died. They didn't embalm. They didn't go through all this procedure. They literally would um, put some ointment on them that smelled really good and then wrapped the body around once the ointment had been put on to try to preserve a good smell for as long as possible. And then they would stick the body in the tomb on a shelf and then would put a stone over over that that tomb so that animals and grave robbers and whatnot would not be able to get in. Now the fact is this, is that it's not like Lazarus has just stopped breathing a minute ago and one of the CPR-trained disciples just needs to go get the defibrillator and come on and pump his chest. Like, it's four days. It's a hundred hours. He's dead dead. He is still dead. He is dead as a doornail dead. I mean, he is completely dead. No heartbeat, no blood flow, no brain activity. Decomposition is setting in. Everybody knew it. And so, we need to understand the the drastic nature of the deadness of Lazarus so that we can understand the drastic nature of what Jesus ultimately does. Now, if you look down at the text, Martha, who is the busy one and the active one in the family, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find about Martha is that she's busy and active and bustling And what you find out about Mary is that she's quiet and still and a little more contemplative. And that plays out here in this scene as well. And so Martha sees Jesus from a distance, I guess, and runs out to him and establishes this reality. It's not so much disrespect of Jesus. It's not so much anger at Jesus. It's actually 
just saying, Jesus, if you'd have been here, I believe so much in your power that you could have raised him from the dead. I so wish you would have been here. You loved him. I loved him. Mary loved him. We all loved him. And if you'd have been here, we could still be enjoying his presence to this day. That's what she's saying. And if you look down at verse 23, Jesus makes a claim. He says, your brother will rise again. Now what Jesus means is that he's about to raise Jesus uh, Lazarus from the dead here in, in just a little while. But she takes it to, to uh, interpret it in a way that she says, well, you know, in her mind she's knowing Psalm 16.10 talks about the resurrection. Job 19 talks about the resurrection. Other passages in the Scriptures talk about the resurrection. Yes, I know that there will be a resurrection for Lazarus in, in, in the coming days when it's all said and done, and, and he will enjoy that. You're, you're right, and, and I should probably be consoled by that. Now what is amazing about the person of Jesus is that he does things that constantly surprise us. And Jesus, instead of just wrapping his arms around Martha and just consoling her and listening to her and just saying, I'm here, anything that you need, I just want to offer to you. If there's anything I can go do or do you have enough food? Do you have enough drink? And is there any way we can serve you to make things better right now? That is not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do in this moment? He declares truth about himself. Who goes to a funeral? Who goes to people who have loved a lost one and begin to talk about themselves? Like if you don't look at this text in the eyes of faith, then what you're saying is this seems to be a bit of an egotistical ploy, play by Jesus. He comes to this woman who is struggling and is grief-stricken and he begins to declare truths about himself. But it is not egotistical when you are bringing information about yourself that completely changes the game on the scenario that's being played out. And so let's look down at the text again. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Keep your eyes on verse 25. When he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, I want us to just, I want us to think about a few realities of that statement. And the first is when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, I believe he's hearkening back to the previous five I am statements that he's already made in this gospel. Can you remember him saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. He's consistently said this. And I believe he's hearkening back yet again to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses meets the Lord, the burning bush is there. And Moses is, is talking to, to the Lord. And the Lord is talking to Moses. And Moses says, well, if I go back to Egypt, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, tell them, I am who I am. Eternal existence, eternal presence. Covenant maker, covenant keeper. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, that's who has sent you. And so... I believe he's hearkening back and saying, I am. That's, that's me. I am the Lord here. And I am the resurrection and the life. Now, two more things I want us to contemplate about this statement. The first is, before we can get to the fact that Jesus is the source of our resurrection, 
the source of our life, I think it would be important for us to just see that he is making a condition statement. He's making a statement of identity. He's not saying merely, I give resurrection and I give life. Tell me explicitly what the statement is. I am the resurrection and the life. I was reading a book called Scandalous this week and was actually addressing this very text. And the writer said, uh, he said he could remember when Kentucky Fried Chicken opened. And it was just all the rage. And it didn't matter where you go, you identified Kentucky Fried Chicken with one image. With, with one thing, does anybody know what the image is of Kentucky Fried Chicken? Colonel Sanders, white hair, white mustache, white goatee. And if you heard the words Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC, you immediately connected it with Colonel Sanders. So much so that if Colonel Sanders wanted to say this, he very well could and everybody would have known what he meant. I am KFC. I am KFC. Like, you can't have KFC without Colonel Sanders. I guess that's why since the original one died, they brought back a new one. Have you seen those on conversations? I mean, on commercials, right? I am KFC. And by that, he would be saying, look, I'm the one who has the created the 11 uh, unique ingredients. I'm the one who provides the, 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 the fried chicken that just melts in your mouth. I'm the one who brings this to you. I'm so attached with the product that I bring that I can say I am KFC. Okay. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what he's saying is, is I'm so connected with resurrection. I'm so connected with real life. I'm the one who brings it. I'm the one who provides it. I'm the source of it. Therefore, I am the resurrection and the life. And so that then gives us kind of the third aspect of this this statement. I'm the source. Like, if you want resurrection, you've got to come to me. If you want real life rather than fake life, you've got to come to me. If you want eternal life rather than temporary life, you've got to come to me because I'm the one who brings both physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection. And real life and eternal life, it comes by me. And so he's not not being egotistical. He's not being self-centered. He's doing what is the most loving thing possible for Martha and Mary and all those who are around. He is offering hope and a promise to everyone who will believe and will trust in Him. And then He does what every good gospel person should do. He turns the attention onto His hearers and He says, Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha has to respond to this statement of identity that Jesus makes. It's not enough just to declare reality. We have to offer reality to people and say, what are you going to do with this reality? And in this case, Jesus is offering reality and truth and hope to a woman who already believed that he was a powerful figure and a loving figure and a compassionate person. But now he's saying, you need to believe the bigness of who I am, the grandeur of who I am, and all that I can and will do for those who believe in me. Now, I want to ask you the question. What is your answer to Jesus' claim that He is the resurrection and the life? If I were to ask you one-on-one, 
And it was just me and you in the room. I said, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? What would you say? If you say no, then how does that impact the rest of your life and your eternity? And if you say yes, how is that impacting your life right now? I uh, read a very, very sad obituary this week. And I want you to enter in to the hopelessness of Christlessness with me for a moment. This was a self-written obituary by Gerald Inslee, who was an award-winning journalist in Tallahassee, Florida. He died a few days ago at the age of 66. I won't be able to read his entire obituary for you because it's really long, but he wrote it before he died, and it was printed in the paper, and I assume read at his funeral. It's very likely may be today. I'm going to pick it up. He says, I graduated from Satellite Beach High School in 1969. Spent two years at FSU, then dropped out for seven years, during which I worked numerous jobs, including four very entertaining years as a taxi driver in Tallahassee. I went back to FSU in 1978 and got my degree in political science in 1980. I was sports editor of the Flambeau for two years, won college sports writer of the year from Sports Illustrated in 1980. On September 1st in 1980, two weeks after graduating from Florida State, I joined the Tallahassee Democrat as a sports writer. I spent eight years as a sports writer. In 88, I quit to join two friends in forming a video production company. Democrat executive Bob Stiff said, don't just quit, take a sabbatical. And if in a year you want to come back, you can. I did exactly that, returning in 1989. Thank God for Bob Stiff. God's in lowercase letters. I have written for every regular section of the Democrat that they've ever produced and every special or weekly section we've ever produced. From game plan to living here to Century Project to the 1956 bus boycott anniversary section. As of September 2015, I've won 49 state and national writing awards at the Democrat, winning in more than a dozen categories, from columns to sports writing to news to feature stories to public service stories. I also won an award at the Florida Flambeau for an even total 50 awards. Please stay with me here. I met FSU professor, grief counselor, and public speaker Sally Carrioth while doing a story in September 1986 and began living with her and her daughter, Amanda, who was eight at that point. Sally and I lived together 19 years before marrying on October 31st, 2005. Sally and Amanda are the greatest things that have ever happened to me. Sally's the smartest person I ever knew and the best friend I ever had. Amanda's the best child who ever was and became the most wonderful adult. My hobbies were mostly sports as I played City League softball for 35 years playing city league basketball and flag football for many. I took up golf in my late 30s and became an avid golfer with a handicap that ranged from 8 to 14. I loved reading all my life. The main reason I became a writer was to pay back all the writers who gave me such pleasure reading. I joined the Democrat thinking I would stay a few years then quit to write novels. I assumed everyone wrote for newspapers just to develop their writing chops. I quickly learned the majority of journalists were there because they loved journalism, which is finding out the facts behind issues, events, people, etc., I never really had that kind of curiosity or reformer's zeal. I often felt bad that I didn't share the enthusiasm of most journalists for rooting out malfeasance and telling the public about the news. 
I'm going to have to skip a little bit here. He says, don't forget to call Sally. She's a master talker and is always dismayed when a guy's wife is not quoted in a news obituary. He then goes on and writes bullet points here for the end. Listen to this. I want to die early on a Wednesday morning in case I merit a story in the newspaper. Early Wednesday doesn't mess with overtime or the weekend. If I die on the weekend, wait till Monday to do the story. I want my funeral about noon or one on a Friday so everyone can get some work done in the morning then take off the rest of the day and play golf or whatever they want to do. There can be no religion of any kind at my funeral, nor any service in a church. And if anyone claims at the end of my life that I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, know that they are lying. I've spent my life as an atheist. That's the way I'll die and hope that hell has been way oversold. I want my funeral to be at some place like a civic center, meeting room, the antique car museum, or the FSU alumni center, anywhere spirit neutral. No open casket, no matter how good you look in life, nobody looks good embalmed. I don't want any cliched quotes from Shakespeare, Tennyson, or those insipid inspirational essays like the Dash. If you can't say something on your own, don't say it at all. Don't use the word courage for anything I've done. Courage is only applicable when you put your life on the line, and I never did. Don't say my life was worthwhile because I inspired one person or wrote one story that changed somebody's life. I don't care if my life was worthwhile and have no illusions it should be. Don't say I'm in a better place unless I've gone somewhere with golf courses and beautiful women. Don't say I died the way I would have wanted to unless, of course, I've died on a golf course in the arms of a beautiful woman. Don't say I'm up there listening. There is no up there, and wherever I'm at, I can't hear anything. There are many things I could say about myself, but never would for the same reason I oppose self-evaluations at work. It's up to other people to judge you. And truth be told, I don't really care what other people think. Because I really loved life. I had great parents, great sisters, a wonderful childhood, a wonderful wife, and a tremendous daughter. A charmed career and a lot of great times and great friends. You can't beat that. Does that feel as empty to you as it does to me? That man, however nice he was, however clever he was, however skilled he was, lived a hopeless, self-righteous, flesh-fulfilling, Christ-rejecting existence. He didn't have an abundant life. He had a minimalistic existence. And as I read that yesterday, all I could feel for him was grief and pity and heartbrokenness. You see, Jesus certainly, living in Tallahassee, Florida, Jesus has certainly confronted himself with this man multiple times. And Jesus, multiple times through his word, would say, do you believe this? And this man even to the very end of his days, said, no, I don't believe this. I reject it with everything that I am. And I'll go into death claiming and owning my own ideology and theology. I don't need Jesus. Church, 
if you profess Christ and you love Him and you live for Him. I just need you to know today that there are so many people in your life, on your street, in your school, at your workplace, who might not have thought about these things as deeply and as connected as many dots as this man did, but they live the same way, they think the same way, and they're going into eternity unprepared the way that He is. And we have the great privilege and the great opportunity to trust in the One who is the resurrection and the life, who gives us abundant life now and eternal life then, who resurrects our... So this is the reality is that when we stop breathing, when I breathe my last, I can tell you this, within seconds, I mean, as soon as my life, my physical life is over, I am ushered into the presence of Almighty God and I get to see my Savior whom in whom I have believed and trusted. I, there is never a moment of time in which I am not experiencing abundant life because when this physical tent expires, my spiritual soul continues. And the same is true for you if you believe in Him. And so trust that, believe that, and let your mark be life, let your life be marked by that reality. Okay. Let's go to the emotion of Jesus. The emotion of Jesus. We see it in 28 and following. And I just want us to just hone in on two primary emotions that we see in Jesus. So, when Mary approaches Jesus and falls at His feet and says the exact same thing that Martha had said to Him minutes before, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Some of you have study Bibles. Others of you have little notes in your Bible. Beside that two-word phrase, deeply moved. What, what does the note say about that phrase, deeply moved? No one, has a, no one has a marker on that one? What's that? Indignant? Yes. It means anger. It means agitation. It means significant turmoil. When you see the same word used in other places in the New Testament, what you find is that someone is either angry or they're in turmoil or they're, they have this extreme emotion of indignation. And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus approaches the tomb. He sees Mary. He sees Martha. He sees the other mourners because they are so upset by the death of their loved one that He becomes indignant. Now, very important here for us to understand the emotion of Jesus. Jesus is not mad at Mary. Jesus is not mad at Martha. Jesus is not mad at the mourners. He's not angry with people. He's angry at the sting of death. And He's angry at what causes death, which is sin. And He's angry at the, the grief and the turmoil and the emptiness that death 
produces in the people who are made in the image of God. That's what he's upset by. Listen, church, remember, Jesus created the world and the universe and everything inside of it. Jesus even created Adam and Eve. And he saw what Adam and Eve did when they committed cosmic treason rebelling against the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God in the garden by saying, God, we know you've told us that you don't want us to go to that tree and eat from it, but we're going to do it anyway because that's what we want. And when that happened and man fell from God's good graces, what happened there was an act of such great cosmic rebellion that that God Himself had to judge the nature of that rebellion by death itself. And now, Jesus has left heaven and perfect harmony and fellowship with both the Father and the Spirit and the worship of angels unto Him. He has taken on human flesh. He has experienced suffering and pain and people have blasphemed Him and already tried to kill Him. He has been the recipient of people's anger and maliciousness and hatred. And now in this moment, and this is really one of the only moments in the entirety of the Gospels that we see Jesus' emotions coming to the front forefront and we see His anger at the reality and the sting of death that sin has produced. And He hates it. Church, Jesus hates death because He hates what caused death, which is rebellion against His Father. And He hates death because it is so far below the standard and the glory and the blessing that He created humanity for in the first place. He hates it. And so when He's confronted with it, He has great indignation over it. The second emotion that we see here is not just hatred and anger of the sting of death and the presence of sin, but we see His compassion, His love, His emotional connection with those whom He loves. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled, And he said, where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. I told Joey Boyd earlier this morning that there are just some texts of Scripture that I just never feel adequate, no matter how much I've prepared or prayed to try to describe to the people of God. And surely I'm not going to be so bold as to tell you that I know exactly all that was going on in the emotions of Jesus in this moment. But this is what I do know. Is that Jesus of Nazareth, so emotionally connected with Mary and Martha and the mourners who were around, that it affected him 
internally. And he began to cry tears of sadness. If you notice the progression, it says that Jesus looked at them and saw them weeping, and then Jesus Himself wept. Jesus emotionally connected with the struggles and the sorrows and the pains of the people to whom He ministered. He was not a robot. He was not just a guy who just spoke truth and did not relationally connect with people. No, He fulfilled exactly what His position is now. He is a sympathetic high priest who connects with us on every single one of our emotional levels and He knows what we feel and He feels what he what we feel and He connects with what we feel so that He can be a great high priest that God the Father has made Him. So church, this is what I want to say to you. I don't know whether you're feeling physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, discouragement, depression. I don't know what all your struggles are in this room, but I know there are many. And this is what I know. Jesus Christ connects with you on that level. He understands it. And in many cases, He has felt it Himself. And so instead of trying to white-knuckle through your discouragement or your pain, why don't you go to the One who has wept tears for the pains of people like you and me and cast your cares on Him. Talk to Him. Rely on Him. He will not cast you out. He will bring you to Himself and connect with you and offer you the hope that you really need. So we see the emotion of Jesus and we need to feel it on the deepest of levels. Finally, we see the power of Jesus. In verses 38 through 44. And so they get to the tomb and Jesus makes this command. He says, take away the stone. That was a big stone. It was a heavy stone and it required multiple people to, 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 to move it for sure. And Martha, Martha, it, it, the one who has said earlier, look up at, if you don't mind, look back up at like verse, verse 21 and, and, and 22 because she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now what's interesting is she doesn't spell it out exactly, but she's saying, we know you're from God. Well, you've got the power of God. You've got the love of God. You've got the strength of God. Whatever you could do right now, we know you could do. But she doesn't say, like, raise him from the dead. She's got this cognitive awareness that Jesus possesses the power of God. Y'all see that early on. But now, when it's put up or shut up time, when they get to the tomb, when the reality has set in and Jesus makes the command for them to move the stone over, she's just like, no, wait a minute, you can't do that. You cannot open that up. There will be a stench. There will be a smell. It will be putrid. It will be potent. We don't want to see our brother like that. We don't want to smell our brother like that. We will remember that for the rest of our lives. Don't do that to us. Lord, this will be traumatic. And church, what I want us to understand is that there is a difference between a, a cognitive awareness of the power of Jesus and a confident expectation of the power of Jesus in the moment of put up or shut up time. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have to constantly be pushing ourselves 
from the cognitive awareness to the confident expectations in the moments where we need Jesus most in our life. Look at the text, please. She says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. By this time there will be an odor. And I believe that we need to see that. And we need to think about our own lives. We need to think about our own struggles and the points of our greatest need. And we need to realize that sometimes we say, Lord, by this time, I'm too old to do anything great for the kingdom of God. By this time, there's no way I could lead a Bible study for people. By this time, Lord, you can't use somebody with a history as full and as dark as mine. Lord, by this time, you should know that I'm not your man or your woman for this great job or this great task or this great ministry. And what Jesus is saying to us is the same thing that He would say to Martha. Remove the stone. I'm about to go to work. Church, cognitively we believe, but experientially we often disbelieve. What good is cognitive awareness if it doesn't produce experiential confidence in Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life? If you confess it, but you don't believe it, or if you confess it and you don't live it, then there's really no power in it. And so, let's look at the power of Jesus' voice. He says in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. And what I love is that this, as the message puts it, this cadaver comes walking out of the tomb. His face covered with a cloth, his hands and feet bound by linen strips, white Cloths are, are certainly surrounding his, the entirety of his body, and it requires other people like these professional Jewish mourners, these friends and neighbors who have come from Jerusalem to come and unbind him. And why does Jesus ask them or instruct them to do that? So that there will be a multitude of people who witness this most amazing of miracles that Jesus of Nazareth has performed. It's undeniable. Now, as we land the plane here, we need to realize that this power that Jesus has displayed and this work that Jesus has done in raising Lazarus from the dead is actually not a quote-unquote resurrection. It's a resuscitation. You see, Lazarus goes on to live. We don't read about it. We don't see what his response is. John's actually doing something there. This is not about Lazarus. This is not about the reuniting of Mary and Martha and Lazarus so that they can live in bliss for so many, so many years that we don't ever even read about. This is about the glory of God and the glorification of Jesus saying, I have the power by my voice to raise somebody from the dead. But more than that, I accomplish more than a resuscitation. I accomplish a resurrection by myself dying on a cross for sinners like you, being buried in a tomb and raising from the dead 
dead. And different from Lazarus, I take on a resurrection body. I take on a perfect body. I take on an eternal body that I can be ushered into the glory of heaven and have forever and ever. I accomplish what even my resurrection of Lazarus did not accomplish, which was eternal life after death that you will experience that goes on and on and on and on forever. This was a precursor. This was just a mere shadow of what Jesus would accomplish in His own body some weeks after this. Some time after this. Okay. I want to give you three instructions. I want to give you three instructions based on these truths. would give me a moment to do that. Okay. First, know the identity of Jesus. Know the identity of Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. And by that, it means that He provides both spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection. He provides abundant life now and eternal life forever. He is the resurrection and the life. And that if you want a life that counts, you give your life to Christ. If you want to live forever, you give your life to Christ. He is the source and supplier and creator of all meaningful, real, joyful, abiding life so that you can be rescued from the emptiness that the man for the Tallahassee Democrat experienced for the entirety of his. The question is this, is, is either do you want emptiness or do you want fullness? Do you want vanity or do you want Christ-like humility? Do you want real life or do you want a fake life so that at the end of the day you say like Him, my life didn't count for anything, so don't even say that it did. you got an option. But if you choose the option of Christ, you need to know His identity, that He is the resurrection and life. The second thing that I want you to do is I want you to feel the emotion of Jesus for you. Um, I believe that when we are zealous for truth, excited about theology, we want to parse every verb correctly, we want to designate subcategories of various theology um, truths, we often miss the reality that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who enters into our circumstances and relationships and situations and says, I'm here for you. And so this is what I want you to know this morning. I want, I want you to feel. I want you to feel Jesus' love for you. He's with you. He's for you. He cares for your situation. He is committed to it. He is so committed to your situation that He goes to the cross and feels utter abandonment so that He can identify with the person who feels utter abandonment today, right here, right now. So feel His love for you today. Feel it. And then finally, experience resurrection power in your life. That's the third instruction. Experience resurrection power in your life. Too many Christians are minimalistic believers. We can do a little bit of this. Maybe we can do a couple good things there. Maybe a good word I'll put in on that situation and God might do something with it. Stop that. 
You are a daughter or a son of the King of Kings who has defeated death and sin and hell and darkness. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is proclaiming to you that He is the resurrection and the life. Take ownership of who He is and who you are and live in that victory. And so go out this week and claim what belongs to you, which is gospel power resurrection power and live in that reality for the glory of God. Because this is a fact. You are immortal until your job here is done. You have resurrection. Claim it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing recounting of Jesus' interaction with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And we would simply pray, would you help us own the truth of Jesus as our resurrection and our life? We pray in his name. Amen.